Turn, if you would, please, in your copies of the Scripture to the letter of Paul to the church, the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians. We're beginning a new series. This series will carry us quite some time through 1 and 2 Corinthians because 2 Corinthians is the unavoidable sequel to 1 Corinthians. You've got to have the two. Um, and in fact, I like reading 2 Corinthians. It completes the story and it gives me hope. So uh, we're still several months off, though. Look at 1 Corinthians, please, chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. Our topic this morning will be the call of God. And by providence, I chose another series to begin, The Life of Abraham, uh, beginning in Genesis 11, uh, and then moving forward. Uh, And that happens to be on the call of God as well. So I didn't think of that at the time, but that's what God has brought to us. So we have a, a strong topical Sabbath day. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. Here are the words of the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth. Paul, being called by the will of God to be an apostle of Jesus Christ, and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you. And peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. That in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. Even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. So that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who will sustain you to the end. Guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, we will also be spending some time referencing Acts chapter 18 this morning. So you may want to go ahead and take a bookmark or another thumb and slide it into chapter 18 of Acts. It's there in Acts 18 that we learn of Paul's first venture into Corinth. I've entitled the message this morning, The Church is Built by the Call of God. The Church is Built by the Call of God. Now today, we're going to begin this letter, and the first nine verses, which I've just read, they represent Paul's salutation, wherein the apostle identifies both himself and greets the church in verses 1 through 3. Then in verses 4 through 9, he smoothly transitions into identifying the church at Corinth. Now before we look at the way Paul identifies himself and the Corinthian church, it's helpful to know a little bit more about Corinth to provide some background for our study that we're about to commence. So let's pause for a moment and let's take time to do a little identification of Corinth. Now the city of Corinth was very well founded. As far as a city being established for the sake of affluence, it was Corinth. They had the right place. It was one of the most strategically located cities of the ancient world. It commanded all of the land routes of central Greece, and it sat in a highly defensible raised area. Multiple good harbors lay within easy reach of its citizens, and with the arrival of Roman imperialism, Corinth was conquered. Later, it was destroyed due to rebellion, but was again rebuilt as a Roman colony by Julius Caesar in 46 B.C., The location, the placing of the city, it was just too great. It had to be rebuilt. The city was later declared a free city by Nero, 
Corinth was perfectly situated to thrive. And it's no wonder that by Paul's time, it had become a center of industry, trade, and since we live in a fallen world, commercialized pleasure. The name of Corinth came to be connected with sexual license and perversity, so much so that in the Greek-speaking world, one could be defamed for immorality by describing their behavior with the Greek term Corinthia zestai. In other words, in English, that's approximately, you're acting like a Corinthian. It's in Acts 18 that we read of Paul's first visit to Corinth as part of his second missionary venture. In Acts 18, we read of the success of Paul's mission to Corinth and hence the founding of the Corinthian church. I'll now read Acts 18, 1 through 11 to help us set in our minds how the Corinthian church was first established. So if you're there in your scriptures, I'll give you a moment. We'll be reading Acts 18, verses 1 through 11. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, the native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and he went to the house of a man named Titus, Justice, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. The founding of Corinth, founding of the church of Corinth. Corinth, as a church, we find out very quickly, was rife with problems and difficulties. The early Corinthian Christian church had formed out of strife with the Jews of Corinth, but was dismissed as an unimportant local religious aberration by the local Gentile authorities. The growing Christian congregation was birthed and incubated in a Gentile culture of wealth, power, material influence, sensuality, and immorality, and the influence of these basic elements of the world concentrated as they were in Corinth. These elements would appear in the church body as sinful dispositions and worldly practices which Paul was going to be required to correct. Now, this was a young and restless church. That would be one way to put it. But it was also a hearty one. And we discover that it also possessed a living and a vital faith. I want to proceed from the background information about Corinth and look at the passage more closely now. There's a repeated theme in these first nine verses of 1 Corinthians 1, which appears with a repeated phrase. In verses 1 through 3, we read these words. Listen again. Paul 
called by the will of God to be an apostle of Jesus Christ and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Now in verse 9, we read this same phrase that I repeated. Hopefully you caught it. We read this same phrase summarily presented with these words. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you hear the repetition? The emphasis is on the call of God. Paul names himself as an apostle called by God. He names the church at Corinth as those who are called to be saints together with all of those who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verse 9, Paul identifies the Corinthian church as those who were called by God into the fellowship of his son. There's a clear emphasis here. Paul wants to communicate to the Corinthian church that everything he's about to say to them in his letter, everything that they enjoy as a church connected together, and the salvation that they enjoy as believers reconciled to God, all of that has come about because of the call of God. And that's our theme today. The church is built by the call of God. Now let's begin to work through Paul's teaching of that theme by looking first at his greeting in verse 1. In verse 1 we read, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. Now this statement serves multiple purposes. To begin, it establishes Paul's authority to direct, teach, exhort, and rebuke the fledgling church as necessary. Paul has been called by God as an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's not appointed himself. The church has not appointed him. He operates as a messenger of Jesus Christ with authority derived directly from the calling of God the Father. Now for this reason, the Corinthian church must heed him as a messenger of God. Further, when Paul identifies his apostolic calling as proceeding from God, he notes that it's not a mere title. It has a particular purpose attached to it. God has called him with an appointed purpose. The calling of God is that. It is by nature appointment to purpose. Paul's purpose in his calling as an apostle is to represent Jesus Christ. He proceeds with the authority God has invested in him to follow and declare Jesus Christ. This was not really news to the Corinthian church. They had been founded under the activity of the apostolic ministry of Paul. With Paul's declaration of that appointment, he's not giving them new information. Rather, he's reminding the church at Corinth that there's a chain of connected cause which explains their existence as a church. And Paul is part of that chain of cause. He's part of that cause, but he's not really the founder of the church. Paul is just a part, another part, of God's founding of the Corinthian church because even Paul's apostolic ministry to the church was established by the call of God. God called Paul so that Paul could convey the message of God's call to the church at Corinth. In a sense, by referencing God's call to gospel ministry as an apostle, Paul is telling the church, you wouldn't be here apart from the call of God, which brought me to God and then to you. Isn't, you see the chain. Now there's a lesson, this first lesson I think, that we can learn 
is that God calls his church by calling men to preach the gospel. He builds his church by calling men to preach the gospel. Men and women and children come to faith in Jesus Christ by hearing of the word. And that word must be preached. Romans 10, 13 through 15 tells us this. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen? We believe this. How then will they call, Paul goes on to say, how then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? The call of God appoints and equips the preacher to declare the gospel and proclaim the scriptures in order that the church may be established, built from the ground up of those who repent and believe in the name of Jesus Christ. God calls people out of the kingdom of this world who are citizens of Satan's kingdom and into his own kingdom, and he does that through the words of those whom he has called. He called apostles like Paul, and the eleven disciples, to speak with the voice of the Son in order to call, direct, transform, and sanctify his church, building it. Now connected to this teaching that God calls the preacher, therefore, is the authority and the power of Scripture. It's inextricably linked. Paul was not called merely to preach. Peter and James were not called merely to discuss the gospel. They were called to establish it and, brethren, to inscripturate it for us. They were called to teach the church to establish the supremacy of the scriptures they declared. They were inspired of the Holy Spirit and moved by the Spirit of Christ to establish the New Testament teaching to call the church out of the world and to salvation in Jesus Christ. The New Testament teachings of the apostles need to be preached and taught and declared because those inscripturated words are the written call of God to those he has called or through those he has called to declare his word. Without preaching the word of God, the call of God does not proceed to build the church. Maybe it's better to say it this way. Since God has called men to preach the word, the call of God goes forth to build his church. Now this leads invariably, I think, to another consequential acknowledgement that we have to make. In the end, it's not the preaching of the one called to do it which makes the call of God effectual in building the church. It's not. It's not a man's words or his power of influence of persuasion or his eloquence or his wisdom. It's the content he preaches, the very scriptures which God uses to call the lost into his church. It's God's blessing on preaching, making it effectual, and no power intrinsic to the preaching. Brethren, that's so important. I can tell you as a preacher of the word, to me, <laughs> that's really important. It's, there's no power intrinsic to preaching. Rather, it's God's blessing and nothing else which delivers his irresistible call to the lost with converting power. No wonder, no wonder then, if we read just a little bit further in 1 Corinthians, right down there in verse 21, Paul says this, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. The church is called into existence by God 
through the foolishness of preaching, because in his boundless grace and for some mind-boggling reason, he was once pleased to call apostles, and he's still pleased to this day to call preachers who will extend the general audible call of Christ's gospel to the lost sinner. The preaching is weak and foolish. Paul acknowledges that in Corinthians chapter 2, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3. There he openly admits that his preaching was weak, that it was powerless. Brethren, this is an apostle speaking. His preaching was powerless? But God calls the preachers nonetheless, and then he overrules the impotency and the idiocy of human preaching to call new citizens into his kingdom of glorious light. Now, am I overstating that? I don't think I'm overstating that. Listen to how Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. And I, when I came to you, brethren, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And here, with Paul's words, we learn why God calls men to preach the gospel and works in that preaching to build his church. He does it so that when all is said and done, we look back at the bride of Christ and we say this and this alone, God has done it. Glory to his name. Brethren, let's pause for a moment and let's try to discern how do we apply this lesson. Well, first of all, we learn that man without the gospel message is doomed. Where there is no gospel call, there is no effectual call to salvation. This means that as a church, we need to be committed to training and identifying the next generation of gospel preachers. Part of the duty of the church is to recognize that God is building his church through the preaching of the scriptures. And since that's the case, since he's calling the lost and building his church through that call, through the preaching of the scriptures, we'd better be in the business of getting those men ready. Now having said that, I don't mean to diminish the power of God in calling and equipping such men. But brethren, haven't we just noted that God calls through his word? Now that's my point. God works through the means of his preached word, through the called preacher, and that includes the training and the the equipping of the next generation of called preachers. They too are called through his word. Isn't that exactly what Paul did with Timothy? Just as no one is called and saved apart from the declared gospel, so no preacher is called and equipped apart from the declared, taught, and preached word of God. This is, in part, why we have a plurality of elders, so that we teach and equip one another in our calling to preach and teach. You as a congregation share in that responsibility as well. It's your responsibility to help identify those who need to be equipped to support the calling, to support the gifting of God in them as preachers. And remember, not all who teach are elders. 
Not all who are able to instruct in scriptural truth are qualified or even called to preach or teach, but they can still be instrumental in helping train that next generation pastor. Now, where do I get that idea? Am I just making that up? No, it's in Acts 18. You're right there. Acts 18, verses 24 through 26. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Isn't it interesting that Priscilla's name is prominent? That's fascinating to me. Now, I don't know that Aquila was a preacher called and gifted by God to be appointed to the task. Maybe, maybe not. But his wife Priscilla was certainly not called and gifted by God to preach publicly in the church because she was a woman. And that calling, Scripture tells us, was to men in the church alone. But look at the work Priscilla put in with her husband, even in helping teach Apollos. Now, I don't know, don't ask me how she navigated that work without violating scripture. But apparently she did it well because it's not an accident that she's named here with prominence in Acts 18. Now I point that out to you to establish the point that there are many in the church who are gifted in various ways to help with the work of training the next generation of preachers. It can be done informally like Priscilla did. In common fellowship, unofficially, with great effect. You don't think I had Sunday school teachers? Brethren, I did. They were faithful men and women. Most of them were women. And brethren, isn't this the information age? There are wonderful doctrinal and practical Reformed Christian books which you can read and then recommend to a young man being trained up in the ministry. Or take the information that you glean from it and turn it into a conversation of value with that individual. Now I know some of you have been repulsed in those efforts as you've tried to reason and work with seminary graduates and young preacher boys who by their own estimation know more than you. I know that can discourage church engagement and corporate training of pastors, but that is no excuse for us to cease. We have to shake off those past problems and have an eye to the future. God will provide He will call and gift preachers to build his church, and the church is required to wisely and lovingly engage as a godly means in that privilege and duty. I just want to remind you of that. I know this is no new information, but I think it's here in what we read of Paul being called as an apostle and the church being built on his preaching. Now, second is another thought of application. I think we learn how essential, how vital to us is the preaching of the word to convey the call of God. Wasn't it, brethren, the declared word of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ through which the power of God proceeded to effectually call and save us? Now, since that's the case, dare we diminish the working of that powerful movement of God in our lives? He continues to powerfully call his people to this day and through the power of his preached word. He calls us to obedience. He calls us to good works. He calls us to continual sanctified repentance. He calls us to grow in wisdom and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Brethren, 
He does that primarily through the preaching of his word, through the called preacher to bring new citizens into his kingdom. And then once they're under his jurisdiction, we might argue they never were not, but once they're publicly under his jurisdiction, would he cease delivering his will with power in their lives through the same means? Now he doesn't do that anymore? That doesn't make sense. What's my point? My point is that it is absolutely vital. It's urgent that you frequently, regularly engage without ceasing in the hearing of the preaching of the word of God on the Lord's day. This is how the power of God proceeds as it began in you. Come hear the preacher God has called, not because I'm so eloquent, because I'm not. Not because I'm so clever, because I'm not. Not because I'm so persuasive, because I'm not. Come because God's powerful call proceeds in your life, changing you. Changing you through his blessing of the foolish words of your church's called preacher. Third thought of application for us. Third, I think we learn that the church is built of those who are being saved through God's powerful blessing on the preached word and no other word. God will not empower the effectual call to salvation to accompany the preaching of a gospel of human endeavor. He'll only bless the preached gospel of Jesus Christ, that is, his word alone, with salvific power. Now, by way of proof, let me remind you that Paul has said that his message to Corinth was nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul said as much in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5, which we read a moment ago. Was the preaching of that message and that message alone, was it effectual to convey the call of God with power? Good question. Well, the answer is in verse 2 of our text. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be his saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. In Joel chapter 2, verse 32, we read these words. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, this is an Old Testament prophecy declared in the context of the impending judgment of God, and it declares the very truth that Paul says produced the church at Corinth. Now, curiously, that prophecy of the day of the Lord, which which we find in Joel chapter 2 and verse 32, that, that prophecy is identified with Israel. It reads as follows, For in Mount Zion... And in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape as the Lord has said. And among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. How about that? There it is. Those whom the Lord calls. There's our theme again. Redemption and reconciliation proceed by the power of the call of God. But it's those who call upon the name of the Lord. It's Jesus Christ in him only. What about the Gentiles of Corinth? Does this specific prophecy in Joel apply to them? Well, Paul's answer is yes. In fact, in the New Testament letter to the Roman Gentiles, in Romans 10, 10 through 13, Paul actually quotes Joel 2.32. Listen to what he says. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. 
For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What are we saying? Note that the church at Corinth, filled with Gentile Greeks and Romans and foreign Jews, had received the glorious and gracious promise made in Joel 2. They had been called by the Lord to redemption and salvation in Jesus Christ. They had received a great bestowal of riches to become like the Jews, the Gentiles had to become like the Jews whom God had covenanted with in the past. For this reason, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1-2, call to be saints together with all of those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This glorious salvation had come to Gentile Corinthians because God had called them to come to him for salvation and that call had been issued with power through one name alone, the name of the Son, Jesus Christ. This is the power of God unto salvation to any that believe, and it's only found in that name, in the message of that name. Now, for this reason, brethren, I'm going through this process of bringing a thought into your mind. For this reason, our message of salvation must be the gospel of the work of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. We need to contend as a church, for the purity of substitutionary atonement and justification through Christ's imputed righteousness alone. We have to contend for that. So important, so vital is the purity of the gospel call that the church will not be built through any other call. For this reason, the apostle John says in 2 John 1.10, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. Now this is a stunning apostolic injunction against any who calls themselves a Christian, a messenger of the faith, who preaches and teaches a gospel that does not found itself entirely and only on the efficacy of Christ's redemptive work on the cross and faith in that alone for salvation. Any other quote-unquote Christian gospel is counterfeit and necessitates our absolute separation from it. Now that includes that we separate ourselves from the messenger of such a counterfeit gospel. Think of what's at stake. What's at stake? The call of God will not proceed from such a gospel message. It's a replacement gospel, which is a message of demons, because belief in such a message of salvation is useless. It's a false source of escape from sin and divine judgment. In Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, Paul speaks these very sobering words to the church at Galatia. Listen to what he says to them. He says, I'm astonished at you. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. 
Brethren, this is to be our attitude toward any distortion of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The very life of the church of God, its, its foundation to heaven, rests on a single declaration of one way, one truth, one life. This is the only message of redemption through which God will call the lost into his church. So how much is really riding on an unmodified scriptural presentation of the gospel call? Everything. Everything is riding on it. The very fate of humanity. I hope I've made my point. I think I have. Let's move on. Let's move on to a second lesson of God building his church through his call. God's call builds his church because it's potent and effectual in its converting power. That's why we call it the effectual call. I'm not going to go into a a doctrinal definition of the effectual call. Not my purpose today. If you're interested, our confession of faith has an excellent definition of the effectual call. And I point that out to you. Not Paul's purpose here. A proper understanding of the call of God coming to the Gentiles of Corinth hinges on recognizing the intense, effectual power of that call, though. This is no mere suggestion. It's no weak inducement, no enticement, no weak enticement, no simple conventional argument of reason. The call of God that had built the Corinthian church, that divine call which brought the Corinthians to salvation in Jesus Christ had come with amazing and inexplicable converting power. The beginning of Paul's letter to the Corinthian church is at least indicative of that power. Now how so? How? Well, one might easily argue that a Gentile city known for its paganism known for its immoral character, is hardly a likely candidate for a church plant. Yet here among a debauched pagan culture, steeped in demonic worship and sensuality, we might say in the unlikeliest of places, a Christian church has been established. Many were called by God in Corinth. One would suppose that this should suffice to indicate the effectual power of God's call, building his church through its converting potency. But perhaps you need more evidence. Enter Sosthenes. Enter Sosthenes. In the very first verse of 1 Corinthians, in Paul's greeting, we read the name Sosthenes, who alongside Paul greets the church. Now, Sosthenes is a Greek name, which makes sense since he was apparently well known to the church as one, in fact, it would be one of the uh, most unlikeliest of Corinthian converts. He's known to them. To learn who Sosthenes was, we need to turn again back to to Acts 18. In Acts 18, verses 12 through 17, we read of this incident while Paul was in Corinth. I'll read it aloud. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. Now, when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it's a matter of questions about words and names of your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, isn't that interesting, and beat him in front of the tribunal. 
But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Sosthenes had been the Jewish ruler of the synagogue. We read in Acts 18.4 that Paul's gospel preaching ministry in Corinth took place in the synagogue. Quote, And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Apparently, Sosthenes had allowed this. Eventually, pushback came in the form of antichrist Jewish sentiment in Corinth, which reached a crescendo when it became violent. The anti-Christian Jews of Corinth approached the Gentile proconsul Gallio and demand punishment of Paul for teaching the worship of God in a manner that the Jews did not accept. Now, Gallio wisely refused to get involved with what he considered to be a purely religious issue of the Jews, and Paul was set free without any putative measures being uh, issued against him. But then we read that Sosthenes was beaten. Now, the passage literally reads this way, that Sosthenes was beaten. Some biblical scholars are uncertain if the Gentiles beat Sosthenes or the enraged Jews. To my mind, the only clear group of people which the pronoun they can be linked to, which is presented in the text, is the Jews. That's, that seems to me to be the context. They themselves beat Sosthenes, probably because their indictment of Paul had failed and Sosthenes became the scapegoat. His failed leadership had permitted Paul to utilize the synagogue to advance the Christian message and cause in Corinth, and, and it caused violence in Corinth, and therefore he was to be blamed. Now I understand that some attribute the beating to the Gentiles, of course, to the Greeks who had been stirred up by Sosthenes and the ire of the Jews. That's not my view. I think it's better to look at it as the Jews. I think the beating of Sosthenes indicates that the Jews recognized that Sosthenes was sympathetic to the message and ministry of Paul. Possibly he was already a convert. Or, admittedly, it's equally possible that this beating was used as a providential action of God to remove Sosthenes from leadership and take away the esteem of his peers. Perhaps it was necessary that Sosthenes be humbled or more fully separated from his Jewish faith so that he might be set apart to Christ, called by God. Now, whatever the case, by the time we reach Paul's first letter to the Corinthian church, Sosthenes is a well-known Christian brother. He had become a convert to the faith. Now, if that's still not enough for us to see the effectual converting power of the call of God, let me just note that Sosthenes was not the first leader of the synagogue of Corinth to become a convert through the powerful call of God in the gospel. Sosthenes was the successor of Crispus, the previous leader of the synagogue, and Crispus had already become a Christian. In Acts 18, verse 8, we read these words, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. Between Sosthenes and Crispus and the existence of a significant Christian church in Corinth, we can't help but come to the conclusion that God's call to salvation in Jesus Christ is effectual and powerful. It changes men, women, and children. It turns them from those who oppose Christ to those who have fellowship with him. Now, brethren, I think there are several ways that we might apply this teaching of the converting power of the call of God to salvation. 
First of all, we ought to have confidence in the power of God's call through the gospel message. It changes the very nature of man down to the core of his inner person. Our gospel message, brethren, it's powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword separating even the soul from the spirit of a man. It does that because the call of God attends it for those whom he is pleased to put his love upon. We should never doubt the effectual power of God's call. Corinth, again, is the most unlikeliest of places for the church to be established. But look what the call of God accomplished. The city of Albany. It's a pagan city full of pagan Americans, full of pagan citizens of Oregon. And it may seem like an unlikely place for God to build his church. But the building of the church of Jesus Christ does not proceed according to human wisdom or convention, but by the will and the power of God when he is pleased to call people to himself and convert them with regenerating power. Let's not suppose that anything in a human, anything present or anything lacking, anything in a human is a bar to the effectual call of God when he determines to build his church. Secondly, brethren, let's frequently remind ourselves that only the power of the effectual call of God builds the church, and only that. The glory of church growth goes to God alone because it proceeds by his powerful call alone. We can proclaim a perfect gospel message with the tongues of angels, and it'll fall flat on deaf ears. The profession of our Christian lives may be a light with more passion and zeal and holiness lived in the sight of the world than the greatest saint who ever lived, but it will appear in the sight of blind eyes. That is, unless the power of God attends that proclamation with a powerful supernatural call which opens deaf ears, heals blind eyes to hear and see and understand and receive in faith what is declared. Let's learn to honor God in our evangelical efforts. That's all I'm saying. Prayer is the necessary and powerful attendant in all of our evangelical efforts because it's in answer to the prayers of God's people that God has often been pleased to exercise his power in awakening dead sinners. We need to pray for the powerful call of God to go forth and invest itself in our declaration of the gospel, both in our words and in the profession of our lives. Apart from the operation of the Spirit of God empowering the word, the church will not be built. But with that empowering work of the Spirit of God, the gates of hell itself can't prevail against the church. What am I saying? Brethren, it's not a clever psychological approach which is needed. It's not appeal to human emotion. It's not tantalizing descriptions of benefit. It's not manipulative guilt trips. The gospel does not need to be painted with a veneer of human endeavor to make it effectual. It's the power of God's will and his presence and his grace attending it that makes it powerful. The growth and the influence of the church is entirely dependent on the powerful call of God converting the lost. Let's remember that. Let's remember that as we obey our Lord, making sure that we always have an answer for the hope that's in us. You can give that answer but it's the power of God that makes that answer effectual to salvation. Now finally, I want to bring us to a conclusion with a third, a final lesson from Paul 
regarding God's work of building his church through his effectual call. Lesson number three. The church is built into a fellowship by the call of God. In 1 Corinthians verse 1, Paul has identified Sosthenes as Brother Sosthenes. In verse 2, Paul describes the church as those who are, quote, called to be saints together with all those who, in ev- who are in every place. And finally, in verse 9, Paul identifies the church at Corinth as those who have been, quote, called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. When we place those three verses together, we come to understand that the church is a community of friendship. It's a community of family which has been created by God's effectual call. To Paul's mind, our effectual call is not only to salvation from judgment for sin individually, It's not only a call that sanctifies an individual personally. It's not just a call that effectually brings a person into fellowship with God through Jesus Christ. It does all of those things surely, but additionally we're to understand that the powerful outcome of the call of God brings us into relationship with others. It literally builds the community and the fellowship of the church corporately in Jesus Christ. We become a living body collectively called the Bride of Christ. Where once before we lived for ourselves, behaving like a Corinthian, to satisfy our own individual desires. Where once before we satisfied ourselves in our own minds and consciences like a Jew, doing what was right in our own minds. Now, having been called by God, we are no longer a selfish culture of isolated individuals. Now we've entered by the powerful calling of God into his church. What does that mean? How does that affect the way we live? Well, first of all, it means that we've been changed and rebuilt, converted to live in large part, brethren, for others. For this reason, Paul says what he says in verses 4 through 6. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him with all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, that you're not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. What has that got to do with the church as a fellowship, called to be a fellowship? The calling with which the Corinthian church was called and built, that call had come with enrichment and gifts. They were given wisdom and knowledge of God and insight into his word and the work of Jesus Christ. They'd been given every necessary gift of preaching and teaching. No gift was lacking. Why? Because now they were the church of Jesus Christ, operating as a community that waited for his revealing, his return with power and glory, waiting for him to be with him one day, possibly through death or through his return. As a community of believers, they had been gifted by the calling of God with great riches in Jesus Christ. They had been called to use those gifts, that knowledge, their excellent speech, all of these gifts, in context, in the context of the church as a fellowship of brethren. The powerful calling of God, which brought them into his kingdom and made them a family of citizens, had even granted gifts to bless the fellowship of that kingdom. That's what Paul's saying. Now, I don't have the time today to develop that idea, that idea of the use of the gifts of God to build the church through the fellowship of the believers. Don't worry. 
That's exactly what Paul's going to do in weeks ahead. We're going to get there. Suffice it to say for now that you have been called to an active ministry to your brethren in the church. Not only has God effectually called you to a certain and irrevocable status as saved in Jesus Christ, but his call has also powerfully worked in you to make you an active and vital part of his adopted family in Jesus Christ in the church. Brethren, in this church. What does that mean practically? Well, let's just say it. It it means that you don't get to live out your Christian faith alone. It means that you have been called to live in fellowship with your Christian family, the church of Jesus Christ. It means that even though you may be an introvert, you may want to live like a hermit, perhaps that's your personality, you may not. That's not your calling. It means that though you may have many personal reasons to not put yourself out there for your brethren, you have been called, and that powerfully, and gifted to exercise yourself for your brethren. It means that though you may have much business in the world, your real vital business is in the church of Jesus Christ. It means that though you may have power over your wealth and your schedule and your interests, those things all ought to bow to the needs of your brethren whenever right and possible. You've been called into the fellowship of the Lord Jesus Christ and that aspect of the call of God is no less powerful than the effectual power of the call which converted you to begin with. They are one and the same. So what have we learned in summation? We have learned that the call of God proceeds with supernatural power, creating his church, establishing his relationship with his church, empowering the message and the mission of his church, and establishing and enriching the fellowship of his church. Brethren, we've learned, when it boils down, we've learned what James says to us in James 1, 17 through 18. I'll close with these words. Listen to James. Every good and perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Amen.